Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, uh, and coming to you from New York City, also coming to you from New York City, our regular Thursday co-host Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and Just Security. Hi, Ryan. How are you? Hi, David. Very well, thanks. Great. And we have two of our favorite uh, guests. Um, uh, Lori Garrett is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, one of the nation's leading experts writing about uh, pandemics and the like, and is well familiar to everybody given the year that we've been through. How are you today, Lori? Well, as you said, given the year we've been through, I hate 2020. Um, well, let's uh, hope that um, t- 2021 is is better, and we'll talk about that in a second. We're also joined uh, by a new friend, Olivia Troy, who was with us before. Olivia was DHS official, was a senior advisor to Vice President uh, Pence, participated on the Coronavirus Task Force, and has subsequently come out and has been quite vocal in her critique of a number of the things that have gone on within the administration. Um, How are you, Olivia? Hanging in there. This transition can't come fast enough. Um, Yeah, or for some people, it can't come slow enough. So uh, one of the things that makes today's episode different is that we uh, have a number of guests who are joining us who will be able to pose questions to us using the Q&A function in this chat. If if you're a guest and you want me to pose a question from you to the group, you go to the bottom of the window, you click on Q&A, and you pose the question. Um, and then I'll sort through those as makes sense given the the flow of this discussion. If you submitted a question earlier via email, you're going to have to, I'm afraid, um, uh enter the question back in because we don't have all of those gathered in one place. So please put your questions in. We'll be talking for a few minutes before we get to them. Um, uh, But we will try to get to all of your questions uh, before we um, end our discussion around uh, 40 minutes from now. Uh, Let's begin um, uh, with you, Lori. Uh, You know, you talk about what a rough year 2020 has been. It certainly seems like, from the perspective of the pandemic, um, this this past week has been, you know, Dickensian in the sense that it has been the best of weeks and the worst of weeks. There has been some hope provided um, in terms of the possibility that at some time next year, perhaps even in the the late spring, there may be a, a vaccine which could be helpful with this. Um, but we have seen an extraordinary run-up. In, in fact, the entire country has essentially become a, a hot spot. 
um, and uh, deaths are, are, are arising, cases arising, hospitalizations arising, systems are being stretched to their limits. Is this as bad as it gets, or do you think it's going to get worse from here? Oh, no, we're, the, we're on the beginning of the worse, of the worsening, of, of the great unraveling, of the opening of the gates of hell. This is just the start of our cruel winter. Uh, where if you look at the pace at which um, key changes are occurring, it's quickening, it's hastening. So that, for example, the time it takes to go to the next million uh, case, cumulative cases is shortening and shortening and it's now down to 10 days. So we're jump, we jumped from 9 million to 10 million in 10 days. And at the current rate we're going, we'll probably hit 11 million in like six days. Uh, and similarly, if you look at the daily case load, we're skyrocketing. We're now approaching 145,000 a day. And any minute now, the data for today will come through and we'll see how much worse that is. We'll most certainly be up in the neighborhood of uh, 200,000 new cases a day by Thanksgiving. Um, and if you look at deaths, we're now, we've now jumped back up to 1,500 plus a day, and uh, that will certainly increase. So by every single statistical measure you can possibly look at, we're on, on a completely unfettered course towards health. And then if you add in the key feature that's different in this as we go into winter surge compared to the summer and the spring is that both in summer and spring, our outbreaks were geographically localized. And that created a situation where it was possible to um, borrow resources from one part of the country to another. So when New York was running out of morticians, uh, they could reach out to other states and Kansas sent morticians, uh, you know, Nebraska sent EMT drivers, uh, doctors and nurses flooded in from Europe and the rest of the North American region. But we don't have that opportunity now because every single state in the nation is now a hotspot. And our closest friends that were helping us in our two prior surges are also hotspots, meaning all of Western Europe and all of North America. So Canada is experiencing spillover from our epidemic and Mexico's situation is truly out of control. So every state locality, every region, every hospital is on its own now. The resources you have on, on hand, that's it. The federal government is not there to help you and you won't be able to borrow from your next door neighbor county and you won't be able to shuttle patients over and dump them in another part of the country, as has been the practice. I mean, Idaho dumped patients into Oregon, but now Oregon, all their hospitals are full. And we're beginning to see uh, the first reports of parts of the country saying we're running out of refrigerator trucks to operate as backup more. So I think we're, this is only the ascent stage. We're a long way from a plateau. Uh, certainly, we're going to go into Christmas with a cumulative total of in the neighborhood of 400 to 450,000 dead Americans. And by then, 
um, a slow day will be one in which 2,000 individuals die in a single day. Face it, your internet service provider can see every single website you've ever visited. That's unnerving. And that's why many people choose these days to never go online without using ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter if you can get your internet from a local ISP provider. ISPs in the U.S. can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, users don't even realize they have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash deep state, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash deep state. ExpressVPN dot com slash deep state to learn more. Brian, maybe you have a question for Olivia. Sure. Yeah. So, Olivia, um, today you uh, signed a letter with about 150 other top uh, former national security officials. Uh, calling on the Trump administration to do the kind of the minimum of recognizing that Joe Biden is at at a minimum the apparent (laughs) winner of the election. And with that recognition would then come uh, transition services, uh, intelligence briefings, um, people detailed from the administration onto the transition team to try to bring them up to speed and integrate them. Um, and other uh, kinds of services. And I just wanted to ask you to maybe talk about the significance of the fact that that is not happening with respect to pandemic control um, and how important it is that that start uh, sooner than later. Right. I think I think it's really unfortunate timing, honestly, to be playing politics on the presidential transition because we're really in a very dark phase as Lori eloquently very very well described of what's happening here across our country and you know when you don't when you don't allow for this type of transition team to land and engage with their counterparts and these are people who have been in the interagency across the U.S. government and the task force that exists right now the experts on the task force and all of the experts back at the agencies that have been working especially on the pandemic to work on this topic and who know the history of what's been going on and also know the history of what should have been done, could have been done, but wasn't, right? That is, there's a lot of that, I can tell you, on the table that the Biden team could use. 
and they can learn from past mistakes or what worked, what didn't, or why was it done this way? Or why did Dr. Fauci and Dr. Hahn and Dr. Redfield, like what consensus did they come to when the Trump administration then overrided whatever decision was made? And all of that groundwork right now could be briefed. They could be getting the binders. They could be getting the transition briefings from each department that was involved on this response. And they could also be making plans immediately for the vaccine distribution and for the allocation of it. And what happens when a safe vaccine gets developed and we can move right out of the gate to get it out as quickly as possible and as safely as possible and in a matter that's organized. And all of that is left on the table. And never mind the other national security traditional implications on why the Presidential Transition Act exists. I mean, it's created so that we wouldn't weaken our country during a moment of transition. We would not allow for foreign adversaries to take advantage of that situation. But right now what's happening is that you have foreign adversaries who are watching this sort of play out, who know that President-elect Biden isn't being briefed. He doesn't have the intelligence that he might need to really understand and to staff accordingly on experts on what's coming. And then you have the invisible virus of COVID who is also running rampant against us, right? I mean, so all of the adversaries that are out there that pose a threat to our country, especially domestically, have free reign and the normal apparatus that exists to kind of prevent that from happening is on standstill right now. And I'm not saying that there's not action being done by the president-elect's teams. Clearly they're talking, you know, off the ground with counterparts and they're gathering that information. But we're talking about traditionally, the career service preps for a transition months in advance. They create binders of materials. They create timelines of materials. They tell you who, you know, what each department does, just basic fundamental things like that. Luckily, you know, president, a president like Biden has served and he's very familiar with these things. But there's been a lot of damage done in the past four years and things have really changed across the government. And there's a lot of repair that I would say that has to get done. And so it's really just kind of. I think detrimental to the entire country to have this moment happening where Emily Murphy at GSA won't sign this memo and give them access to office space where these conversations can happen, where these classified lines can be made available, for example, for world leaders to call the new president-elect, right, for that engagement. I mean, there are just so many layers that that holds up that, quite frankly, is just so unpatriotic and un-American for the current president and the administration to do right now. It's just, it's detrimental to our democracy, this behavior. I would note, by the way, that Joe Biden has made one appointment, probably the most important appointment a president gets to make. Some people call the chief of staff the, the deputy president. Uh, and that's Ron Klain, who happens not only to have formerly been Joe Biden's chief of staff and also Al Gore's chief of staff, um, but he was the Ebola task force czar. So there is a guy at the center of all of this who gets it. Uh, and that's a that's certainly a positive step despite all of this. Another positive development, and, and I, I'll then start going and picking up some of the questions that we've had submitted for each of the three of you, has to do with, with um, the vaccine. Uh, the most talk this week has been around the Pfizer uh, vaccine, uh, which poses certain challenges in getting out there. Um, Lori, you know, what are you telling your friends about the vaccine? What are you, you know, what are you telling them about how they should look at this and how it's going to change things? Well, 
first, David, if I may, I'd like to jump a little on some things that Olivia said, because I think it's really important to, it almost sounds like we have two separate conversations here. One is about, you know, national security apparatus and transition, and the other is about COVID. But in fact, they're right on top of each other. Uh, and it's really, I think, very important for those who are listening, who are more tuned in because they're interested in COVID, to pay attention to what Olivia is talking about. Because we have a situation where we're have, we have a super spreader in the White House. There clearly was a second super spreader event, which occurred on election night, as they had a big old party in the White House. And then Carson, the Secretary of HUD, is sick. Uh, there's a, a, uh, at least, I think, eight people have come down with COVID. Uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani brought a guest, and that guest is suffering with COVID, and it's still spreading inside the White House. And inside the White House and outside among his many activists trying to keep the president in power, uh, mask wearing is shunned. And come Saturday is the MAGA Million March. And they are now making their way, barreling down on Washington, D.C., uh, goaded on by Rush Limbaugh and Alex Jones to have a million armed citizens show up in Washington, D.C. to declare that they don't want the president to leave office. And you can be darn sure they won't be wearing masks unless they're hiding their identity, but not because of COVID. And so we could potentially have yet another super spreader event right there in the Capitol. Um, as we look at the vaccine question, one of the people that the president has on more than one occasion said he would like to fire is Steve Hahn, who runs the FDA. And of course, you can't have a vaccine unless you have an FDA approval. And the FDA has to use a very unusual process, never used before. Um, we have done emergency use authorizations before, for example, for a COVID, I mean, a Ebola treatment. But uh, we've never done one for a nucleic acid-based product. So how exactly you prove and demonstrate the safety and efficacy of injecting messenger RNA into human beings so that their own cells now make a protein, which then their own immune system recognizes and attacks and therefore, therefore prepares them for the onslaught of actual viral exposure this is all new. We've never done this before. So everybody at the FDA that would, under the best of circumstances, be scrambling to figure out how do we assess the safety and efficacy of this product is now in Operation Warp Speed with a crazy chaotic White House, a huge amount of pressure being placed on the FDA from multiple directions, and nothing but, so far, a one-page press release to go on written, of course, by lawyers at the Pfizer Corporation, telling us what exactly they've, they've got. Um, it's not enough to work with, I'll tell you that. And Moderna is ready to announce probably next week details on their very similar vaccine, also made from RNA. And uh, they probably will do the same thing, a one-page press release. Um, at, at some point, you know, the head of the FDA needs to demand serious raw data, needs to demand that all raw data be handed over to scientists inside the FDA to dissect in minutia. And uh, we need to know, is this really as effective as you say? Um, 
And I think it's really important to understand what we actually know so far about the Pfizer vaccine. On the good side, they claim 90% protection, meaning that uh, uh, in their placebo arm, a large number of people got infected, but in their vaccine recipient arm, only eight people got infected. But you need to keep in mind what the time window was. So everybody got one injection, and then they got their second injection 28 days later. And then seven days after that, they got a COVID test. So that's what we know. How many people got infected seven days after their first injection and their booster? Wow. I mean, for me, it's kind of startling that eight people got infected in just seven days in the treatment arm, in the vaccine recipient arm. And then, you know, a larger number, 80 plus uh, in the uh, placebo arm. We don't know what this means. Are you protected for six weeks, six months, six years for the rest of your life? We have no idea, none whatsoever. So to go back to Olivia's point, what we need right now is really solid thinking at the FDA with a confident leader who knows his back is covered. And we have exactly the opposite. And uh, you could take that on through with everything. Just look at how many times in the last three weeks, the Centers for Disease Control has reversed its own guidelines because they're getting so much interference and flack from the White House. So masks protect, no, they don't. Yes, they do. Oh, wow, they really do. You know what? You're not just protecting others when you wear a mask, you're protecting yourself. Well, maybe not, but maybe so. We're not really sure. So that's the world of the CDC. And it's, it's all highly unsatisfactory. Uh, Olivia, let me t- turn back to you. Um, and I'm just going to go around the, the group a couple of times with questions that are either exactly the ones that we've been asked or derived from them. Uh, but I, I saw a report today that the president has not attended a coronavirus task force meeting for months. Um, and, uh, you know, I noticed that your former boss, the vice president, was about to go away on vacation uh, and then decided that he wasn't going to go, you know. Uh, but you don't get a sense of urgency out of this White House at this moment of crisis. Um, and the question, I, you know, as bluntly as I can put it, do you think the White House is going to do anything about this between now and Inauguration Day? or? Have they switched off? It's over. It's all on Biden. Uh, or might they even be, you know, do worse? Might they start hiding things that that they did that they think might be damaging? I think it's a combination of all those scenarios that could actually play out. And I think it's unfortunate that they have checked out from the current crisis that's happening. I mean, they it's not like they didn't have any warning, right? I mean, we had Dr. Fauci testifying months ago that if we not if we didn't continue to curb the spread of the virus and we and our pandemic response was not good enough on this and we didn't take certain actions that this is exactly the situation that would play out come the fall and winter that was he testified on that before congress and then we had these discussions we had closed doors and task force meetings repeatedly where we were tracking what happened in italy and we were tracking overseas and those were the models that we used where we knew that if we didn't get it down to a certain number of cases every day this is exactly what would happen. And we are there right now. It's all playing out. But I think that we have what we have now is just a sore loser in the White House 
who was so busy licking his own wounds and, you know, sort of sitting there focused on anything else except for this pandemic. And then you have a vice president, to be honest, who is so busy trying to figure out how he's going to protect themselves from the damage of the sore loser in the coming years moving forward for his own political career, to be perfectly blunt and frank. I'm sure he's sitting there probably freaking out when he has heard the president say that he's probably going to run in 2024, because I'm pretty sure that the vice president was 100 percent thinking that that was his to to lose, probably. And that whole thing probably just derailed a whole bunch of other people's political campaigns. Right. So that's where I think the leadership of the White House is sort of focused on. And I think when you're seeing them clean house at places like the Pentagon uh, and at DHS and now threatening to clean house at the agency and taking her. I'm concerned about that because I think, one, it's vindictive, manipulative behavior to control the sort of messaging that happens moving forward on this and also what is conveyed to the incoming people that are coming in, right? And so I think what you have in this scenario is, I think they're not gonna care about the virus. I mean, you have, for example, we have an attorney general down in Texas launching lawsuits at El Paso that is currently one of the main ground zeros. The morgue is is full right now. I'm actually considering driving 3000 miles to go get my mom and get her out of there. And 3,000 miles each way, because that's how bad the situation is there right now. And we have an attorney general who is tweeting out statements saying that they need to keep the restaurants open. Texas is open. We are focused on opening up. It's not really about opening up and staying open. It's about being smart. It's about doing a mask mandate. It's about supporting communities on slowing the spread of the virus and containing it. And if they have to, do certain precautions because it's so out of control and the hospital capacity is down to zero, then that's what you have to do to protect the American people. But that is a Republican state where Governor Abbott was pressured directly by the president to, to stay open. And so for me, I'm just really concerned. We have no leadership in the White House. They're not going to do anything about it. And I think that especially Republican governors who lifted these restrictions in the past and who have been bullied along the way, it's really up to them now. It's really up to them to back the people in these communities and back the medical community and the doctors and the locals and the mayors who are suffering right now and say, you know what, I get it. I'm going to have your back. Like you, you got to do whatever you got to do and we're going to get through this together or more people are going to die. But right now, riding the roller coaster of the White House when they don't even care because they're too focused on caring about themselves and burning files or whatever they're doing behind the scenes, which I'm, I don't put it past them that they are purposely setting Biden up for failure, that because that's the kind of personality that exists inside this White House. I've seen this firsthand. That is all a combination of all things that are ugly and a nightmare to me. By the way, if Texas were a country, it would be the fifth worst in terms of deaths in the world, right? It's about 40,000-ish or so, which would put it between France and, and Russia. Uh, Ryan, there have been a couple of references and questions to what seems to be, you know, sort of Operation Shredder or, or, or worse going on within this administration, which is let's put some people in there in the IC or in the Defense Department and elsewhere in the government who might bury things, hide things, spin things, possibly people who might even be embedded in the civil service who could become deep state too, you know, the, the Trumpian. <laughs> 
the Trumpian deep state. We'll have to change our go name. and serve him. <laughs> um, what What do you make of all? Of, there are several questions. What do you make of all this? So I think it's too soon to tell. Um, the way I think of it is the data can be explained by multiple alternative <laughs> theories. So one of them, and, and one set of theories is a strong indication that they know their time is limited. They are going, they're exiting on January 20th, and they're going to do certain actions now because the window is about to close. And then the other set of explanations are much worse, um, that they would actually be doing things in order to hold on to power, um, despite uh, the will of the public to have voted for Joe Biden by overwhelming amounts. So in the first category, you could explain a lot of the firings in the Pentagon and DHS today uh, as trying to put their people in place, some of them to borrow. So borrow means you take a political person and put them in a civil service position so it's hard to remove them and then they're stuck there um, with civil service protections, as David was saying, like Deep State 2.0. So that seems to indicate they know that the game's up after January 20th, and it's a more ordinary thing. The other one might be destruction of documents. The other one might be uh, partly dovetailing with what Olivia was saying, which is um, interfering with the transition, not, being, not giving information over to the Biden team, hiding information that would be derogatory or embarrassing. And then there's another explanation as well, which is uh, David Ignatius at the Washington Post was the first to report this, and then it's been corroborated, confirmed by CNN, which is, it's actually this part of, part of these appointments and the people that they're filling in in these positions are for Donald Trump to try to declassify a bunch of information that he thinks proves some of his claims about Russian interference in the 2016 election. Ignatius says that you might think that that's crazy and old news, but it's an obsession for him. So that's all in that category. Um, of course, I think that you still have to hold the other one in mind as well, which is these people are being in, put in enormous positions of power. Some of it includes places where there's domestic surveillance. Some of it includes cybersecurity and uh, people who counteract disinformation. And of course, uh, you know, there's the concern about would the military ever be used one way or another domestically. And I think there's not enough information to rule that out. And some of the people that are being put in place are not being put in place in burrowing positions. I think that's a very low likelihood. Part of me has even thought that this is all a distraction and the real way of holding on to power is the Justice Department and Bill Barr. And that's where the action is at if they're gonna to try to do that. But I think those are the, I think it's a very low probability that are, but obviously, a, huge impact if it's the category of trying to hold into power. Brian, I was in a meeting earlier today with one of Trump's key advisors uh, who said, well, we've, we've done strategy number one to slow this down, strategy number two, and all the legal recourses are failing. So now strategy number three is to um, ruin the elector voting on December 14th when the Electoral College votes and to try and sway so-called uh, unfaithful voters among the electors. Um, but he conceded that that would be a hard slog and that some, some 30 states have laws saying uh, an elector cannot change their vote under any circumstances. Um, but that shows you the extent to which they're 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 grasping at straws, and then of course there's you know 
a lot of people out there saying, look at the military maneuvers and the changes at the at Pentagon um, and this million MAGA uh, march coming, the, the caravans, you can see the trucks uh, pouring in from all over the country and they're armed and they're coming from some of the militia groups and so on. And they absolutely believe that Biden has stolen the election and they're coming to save America. And you can imagine, I mean, just one gunshot somewhere could become an excuse to move in and declare martial law in Washington, D.C. and for the president to do a press conference or a speech from the Oval Office saying, you know, the election was stolen and Antifa is trying to destroy America and every suburb is going to get shot up. And, uh, you know, I have to declare law and order. And until every last vote has been recounted 20 times, I'm staying. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, you know, uh, uh, when we do this, we do this on Zoom so I can see everybody's uh, face. And as Lori, as you were saying this, I was looking to Olivia so that she would be shaking her head saying, that's crazy. That couldn't happen inside the administration I was in. And she was just nodding the whole time. Ryan brought up the the firings today at DHS, which included the cybersecurity guy and so forth. What do you, what do you think of what Lori just said, Olivia? And what do you think of the firings at DHS? As much as I would like to say that's a stark picture. I mean, she's, she's sort of eloquently stating my very worst nightmare. Uh, and I could, I could see a scenario like that playing out when this march happens. And honestly, some of these people have probably been coached to kind of engage as needed from what I've seen in the past. And they purposely bait people into these situations so they can use some of the footage. And they do think that it plays to the president and they play, it plays to his you know, message of being the law and order guy. And I just think that's frightening right now. And we don't have people in leadership at the agencies that would be responding that I trust. I mean, I'll just, there, there's not a single person probably in that Eisenhower executive office building or the White House that knows that I don't trust Cash Patel at all. And I have worked with him on counterterrorism initiatives. This is the new chief of staff at DOD. Correct. And I have, you know, I, I think highly of Chris Miller. I worked with him, but he always had Cash Patel as his deputy there, kind of he was put there to watch over his back. And when when I saw that happen, I literally shook my head and I was like, damn it, Chris can't shake that guy. He cannot shake this. And they know that Cash will follow. And and having Ezra Cohen hand, handling the intelligence in the Pentagon frightens me. I mean, this guy should not have a clearance. And I'm not sure that Cash was granted a clearance, which is why I don't think he was able to remain at DNI. So I'm really confused about what's happening here. And I don't, I don't trust that there's not some nefarious planning going on behind the scenes. And, you know, I was, I was close to Chad Wolf when I worked at DHS and in the White House, but I do know that he will just fall in line. And there's a lot of leadership there at DHS now that their sole purpose in life is to please the president. And that when you have a situation like that where you don't have anyone that's going to push back, 
And you have an entire circle of advisors inside the White House who are now all in on the Trump team. Like, that is worrisome. That is a national security risk. You know, uh, Jim Clyburn has issued a warning call to the nation. And, you know, Jim Clyburn is not, is not to be trifled with. This is the man who basically made uh, Joe Biden the Democratic Party's candidate for president of the United States. He is a congressman from South Carolina, been around the block a long time and quite powerful in the Democratic Party. And he issued a warning saying, what I see happening right now in Washington looks like the rise of fascism. And he used that word and said all of America should wake up and pay attention to what's, what's going on right now. You know, up until he said that, I was willing to think about a lot of it as just, um, you know, sort of lefty conspiracy talk and, and not take it very seriously. And it certainly isn't my area of expertise. I'm, I'm coming at this conversation from the pandemic side, but I take Clyburn very seriously. I think he's a, he's a sober soul. And it's interesting that his comments so tightly overlap with somebody completely on the opposite spectrum, Bill Crystal, and another person far on the opposite, Carl Rove. So Lord knows something's going on. And whether it's going on in the form of just kind of ad hoc craziness with, you know, things in the mix and they don't really have a plan. They're just opportunistically and reactively building whatever the case they can build to keep Trump in power. That's one possibility. The other is more nefarious. Brian, you uh, were... Any way you cut it, it's bad for fighting COVID. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's part of the interesting thrust <laughs> of this conversation, right? As we sit here, we started out talking about COVID. Lori said something kind of extraordinary, which because it's 2020, we take in her stride, which is that by the end of the year or thereabouts, you might have 450,000 people dead, which is more than all the modern wars in U.S. history. And, and within spinning distance, I should add, of the total number of dead of the great flu epidemic of 1918, which was like 500, 560,000, something like that, I think, 600,000, something in that neighborhood. Um, and yet, in this conversation, we've we've we keep stepping away. You know, we keep saying, "Yeah, yeah, we have a, this thing. Half a million people are going to die. The White House isn't going to do anything about it." But there's this other thing that has got our attention, as much or more than that, which is the possibility that the United States might slip down a slippery slope to fascism. That Trumpian you know, appointees might embed themselves in the government. Ryan, you worked in DOD. You've followed all of this closely. You've looked at just security, at the possibilities of faithless electors and other kinds of things like that. How it, does it make sense to you that we're as worried about that as we are to, about COVID? Um. I'd keep my eye on the ball on COVID, to be honest. I mean, so this might be a disagreement among us, which is good to have those. Um, I am, I'm pretty much in the camp that I think, I feel very high level of confidence that um, Donald Trump will not be president after January 20th at noon. And they have no road, um, that there's no path. They don't have a legal path. 
and um so the, you don't buy yeah. into faithless electors and so on and so forth. no i i don't think that's going to happen i think a lot of the electors are just my understanding is it's not even just the law but it's also that there is politics they're selected by the party so that they're it's for bunch of these states then the key states would have to actually be like democrats selected to vote for biden or not going to vote for biden you know so i think it's a so the slog there is like a tremendous slog and now that he biden is going to end up probably winning could keep uh, his hold and having won georgia the number of states that they would have to do that to is just enormous um now the one pause that i have about all of that is the extreme disinformation that has been spread such that there is the polls that suggest 70% of the republican of republicans think that the election was stolen from trump and was not a free and fair election and they think there's widespread fraud and the rest of it so and if you're doing it on a pure political calculation and so that's a bunch of people already and if you're doing it on a pure political calculation then political leaders might think we don't lose so much by overturning the election because our base will actually think we're vindicating and uh uh vindicating them and the election was stolen from them we're actually returning the election as the result to Trump so that does worry me a lot um but i just don't think they have many a mechanism for this um i think if even trump let's imagine even used the worst case scenario somehow used the military or the national guard domestically he's still not president after january 20th and i think that if you really start to build out how that conspiracy would take place one they need a lot more a lot smarter people than they have in these positions some of these people really are flunkies um and were underqualified for the positions they had let alone the positions that they're now in and it would require an enormous amount of other people participating in it let alone the national guard i do think that we should try to start identifying what are the other and i think this is the way i try to keep myself in check by making sure that i'm open to this alternative scenario what are the other benchmarks or indicators that we would look for and if that happens then we've really got to be more worried and so one of them is general milley the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff if he is fired then um blinking red alarms um is one indication the fact that ray is still in position at the fbi i think is really important because i think they would need the fbi um in a big way if they're going to do something of a domestic clampdown I think a lot of these are this that's what I meant originally I think the scenarios are very low probability huge impact if they play out and I also think and this might be another part I should admit that I worry that if we uh, exaggerate in our own minds the idea that they can steal this election and the rest of it it actually plays into what they want they want people to be to feel helpless it's the way of i do think there's a rise of fascism i do think there's a rise of authoritarianism and that's going to exist even when trump leaves office and he's and if he runs for 2024 he's going to have a movement behind him but making him into the strongman when he in, in fact is a pathetic weakling i worry about that so and that might be me overcompensating for that that i don't want to uh, necessarily buy into this idea that they can steal it or, and and that they're building up their forces within the administration right now. I like what you're saying very much and I I basically agree with you. Um but here's here's the thing that is actually really worrying and terrifying to me is that um as everybody goes to their corners and says, you know, stolen election, not stolen election, blah 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 blah. every single aspect of covid control becomes more and more and more politically polarized mm. so here comes joe biden mr i am reasonable 
I'm bringing calm and order. We're all going to have a polite conversation here. And you've got this caravan of, you know, people waving American flags and guns, and you're going to try and tell them they should put masks on. Oh, I'd say basket of deplorables. I dare. Oh, you can say it. (laughs) My, My point is simply this, that we have to depoliticize this epidemic. We can't conquer COVID in this climate. But rather than leaving office in a dignified way with a reasonable transition and handing it off so that there's a continuity of knowledge and a continuity of some sort of decency and a chance for Biden to come in so that by sometime in mid-February, the nation is now used to uh, daily briefings from the CDC, which we haven't had at all, and scientifically based rational information being given out, by then we may be in a situation so politically insane in this country that no matter how carefully the information is crafted, it will be rejected by that enormous group of people, which is nearly half the nation. And then we can't stop it. Just today, I saw that the governor of uh, Florida has hired his own personal advisor on um, COVID data to help him to massage the data. And this guy has absolutely no history or experience in statistics, in epidemiology, and any of the things you would consider essential. He's a sports blogger, but in his spare time, he's the leader of the anti-mask movement. Well, there seems to be a pattern of doing that in the White House, including embracing doctors who are not doctors of infectious disease to advise on these things and sort of shopping for, you know, whomever's going to give them the answers they want. We're running a little bit of uh, tight on time here. I just want to pick up, Olivia, just on the last question. One thing that, you know, question arises, and that is post-January 20th, Let's assume Joe Biden is, as Ryan has assured us, he will be the president of the United States. But we also, as Laurie has assured us, and as you've indicated, are going to have a massive COVID crisis going on. You've been within the Republican senior leadership. Are the Republican states going to push back on this? Do you expect continuing polarization? Uh, you know, there have been some people who've been quite reasonable. In fact, I've been struck by. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, who I've not agreed with in a lot of things, but he's tried to sort of take a different course, uh, as has the Republican governor of Maryland, the Republican governor of Massachusetts, and so forth. Is is that a potential movement? Or are we really going to see, you know, the next chapter of this thing after January 20th, continuing the politicization that we're talking about here? Unfortunately, I think that this Trumpism movement has a potential to continue down the road and divide people on COVID. I think that you are going to see certain governors, but the governors that you mentioned, actually, like the governor of Ohio and everything, they really have been more of the measured, tempered ones. I, I, know, I had a lot of respect for Governor DeWine, who really did listen to his public health person quite extensively. And when he would brief, his briefings were different than a lot of the briefings that we saw DeSantis out there doing in Abbott, right? And I think that was really telling to me along the way, just watching it from inside the task force and inside the White House and also watching their comments during some of the governor's calls that we had weekly. There was an interesting division amongst 
the Republicans that I saw. And I'm very curious to see how that will continue to play out. And I think that you're going to see sort of a characteristic develop there of governors who actually are compassionate and want and understand the fact that it's going to take unity across everyone to fight and overcome this pandemic, who understand the repercussions for the economy, for schools, for our hospitals. I mean, all the different layers that this pandemic hits. And then you're going to have the all-in extreme governors who have sort of been there all along, right? I mean, DeSantis has continuously played down the pandemic, right? I mean, he is, that's his messaging on it. I have to say that I'm glad I wasn't drinking water because I probably would have spat it out when Lori just informed who he hired. Um, I hadn't heard about that yet. So that really kind of made my stomach turn. But, you know, look what's happening down in Texas. It's Governor Governor Abbott. I mean, he was all in on moving full speed ahead that everything was sort of back to normal and then he kind of backtracked. But I think that that's sort of going to be, hopefully, we're going to have to look to the governors that are reasonable and that are actually willing to come to the table and realize what's at stake here, which is American lives in a pandemic that we're not going to overcome, like Lori said, if we don't fight this thing together with everything that we have, whether it's, you know, unity on masks and stopping this politicizing of every single thing that happens along the way. And the worst thing that can happen is that the division that divides us on all these other issues, right, continues on this topic because it was the White House that politicized us to begin with, right? It was the Trump administration that referred to it as a democratic hoax. And they said, you know, it wasn't gonna be as bad as it was. And the cases were actually going away at the beginning. And it was the White House, once again, that started the mass debate when it never should have really been a debate, right? I mean, there's no other world leader out there really out in front like the president, basically exhibiting firsthand saying, don't wear a mask. And I do think, like both of them said, like, I think Biden has, will have a struggle with that, right? No matter what he says and leading by example, I think will help. He will be very different than the president we currently have. But I think hopefully if we can get the public health experts or the CDC and get back to those briefings that Lori mentioned, which started in January and then quickly were cut off when they were a little bit too honest and forthcoming and painted a grim picture. Hopefully we can get it back to the area of science and experts discussing and informing the American people. And I really hope that Americans will also come together and have have compassion and common sense for each other and want to protect each other. And I think, you know, the more loved ones we lose, the more loved ones we see suffer. I'm hoping that that will actually overcome whatever political division we have. I really think that that is hopefully, that is my hope for this country right now is that eventually we'll become the compassionate people and giving people and that I have known the US to be in the past. That's how I was raised. And I hope that those values Look again. It's a very interesting question. It raises a question which we'll have to discuss in some future episode of this, which will, which is, will COVID, which has been the defining issue of this year, become a defining issue in the future about what is a moderate Republican versus an extreme Republican? You know, will that become a dividing line issue? I want to have two one-minute questions here. Uh, I'll save the last word here for 
for for Lori. I have one question for her. But Ryan, one of the questions that came up here, um, which is again, it's a it's a big issue, but uh, the, the people are talking about you know the White House has lied about COVID. Fox News has lied about COVID. People have died because of the lies about COVID. We now have the prospect potentially of the president going out there and and you know starting another network and and doing more lying about these things but they seem to do it with impunity is there you know some legal remedy can somebody sue fox and say you know people died no <laughs> it would have been sued a long time ago um if that's the case we actually i commissioned a piece for just security by a um media law expert on that very question and it's an impossible uh, legal argument against Fox News. Um, to actually the shortest piece in the history of just security it just said no, no it can't. Yeah, no, and, and the other part of it is that we even looked at um, comparatively, like maybe in Australia, what's the Australia law with Fox there? Uh, but you can't sue the network is part of the problem. And you might be able to sue some of the like local uh, stations for having carried it, but that doesn't really work either because there's like this um, intent requirement behind it. Um, some have suggested that the law be changed, but then there's a huge pushback on First Amendment grounds uh, for that. So um, I've thought about that uh, question. Interesting. But, yeah. So, Laurie, oh, uh, there were a couple of questions here on a very practical issue, and I think we should end on a practical note. Um, everybody's looking ahead. They're looking to Thanksgiving. They're looking to Christmas. New York uh, put into place uh, yesterday a... Um, new set of regulations that require um, uh, curfew in bars and restaurants and gyms, 10 o'clock at night. Uh, Chicago has moved a step further. Um, given what's happening, you've talked about in terms of capacity of hospitals spread and so on. Do you expect we're going into another period in which lockdown is the only answer? Yes. Uh, we've been through, we're, we can watch what's going on across the pond and all across Europe, reluctantly, often with really uh, vociferous protests going on in the streets and so on, they are one by one going back into lockdown. And the UK is going in, Italy, Spain, all across Europe. Angela Merkel is imposing the toughest lockdowns Germany has had um, since the beginning of all of this. Um, Will we go into lockdown? The problem, of course, in the United States is that that's a state by state decision. And inside of some states, it's a county by county or city by city decision based on the, the necessities of local public health law. So when you say the we, it's like, who's the we, man? You know, yeah, we, New York, maybe. Uh, Arizona, probably not. Um, what I would say to your listeners by way of closing this conversation out is that you're probably making your plans right now for Thanksgiving and for, for Christmas, for Hanukkah, uh, for generally your holiday celebrations. And in a normal year, those plans would boil down to whose house are we all going to this year? And where are we all going to, and who's going to make the turkey and who's making the pumpkin pie? And, and then for Christmas, where are we going for the tree trimming? And la, 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 la. And what I want to say to you is start being really creative in your thinking. How can you have that sense of sacrament, ritual, family love without 
traveling anywhere and without actually all being in the room together. It's, it's a horrible thing to imagine. And I know that none of you, when this whole epidemic started back in March, could have thought that we would be approaching Thanksgiving with the message, no, do not have a feast together. And Christmas with a message, you know what? Ship, ship the packages, have a, a good Zoom call, and virtually hug your loved ones. But that would be my message. I, I think it's going to be very dangerous to travel and very dangerous to uh, visit households. I saw some numbers break down for some key states uh, and the, the level of, of infection, the prevalence right now is so high in that in a state like North Dakota, South Dakota right now, if 10 people come together who have, don't normally cohabitate, come together to celebrate Thanksgiving, the odds are at least one of them is a carrier. So I don't, unless you're prepared to have your loved ones over and sit down at a feast and everybody's wearing masks and latex gloves for the entire feast <laughs> and somehow slipping food underneath their mask for a little quick, you know, forget about it. It's too dangerous. Well, look, this has been a very uh, 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 enlightening and 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 also um, chilling in many respects discussion. Uh, but it's the kind that we need to have. I'm very glad that that you all agreed to do it for the purposes of addressing some of the questions that the audience posed. And I, I paraphrased and tried to blend many of them together, but I think we covered most of the, the ground that was being touched upon. Um, but also for the benefit of the broader audience at large, because I think it's really important that these issues be framed as directly and as substantively as you framed them. Um, looks like we're going to have a very uh, zoomy Christmas this year. Um, and uh, that's a good thing if it ends up being healthy and we can get into next year. And, and, and it's a year in which sensible policies and vaccines and other things produce a, a breakthrough. Um, in any event, thank you all for participating. Those of you uh, who are listening, those of you who participated in the uh, Ask the Experts part of this, we'll do these on a, on a fairly regular basis. So if you haven't participated, please, please join us in the future. Uh, and of course, especially thank you very, very much to Ryan and to Olivia and to Lori. Come back soon. Stay healthy. Thank you very much, everybody.